How you doing? I'm Doug Devaney, and you're listening to The Plastic Podcasts, tales of the Irish diaspora we all come from somewhere else. Find us and subscribe to us at www.plasticpodcasts.com. My guest today is Tony Murray of the London Metropolitan University. Born and raised in London to two Irish parents, Tony researched the history and literature of the Irish diaspora. Not only that, but he's also director of the Irish Writers in London Summer School, curator of the Archive of the Irish in Britain, and a senior lecturer in creative writing at the Met. Plus, at least one of our interviewees talked about placing him on the plastic pedestal, no less. Exactly what he's doing talking to the likes of us is anyone's guess. So let's start by asking him, how are you doing? Um trying to spare my blushes after that actually uh what what a nice uh, thing for a student to say um yeah i know uh, i have listened to a couple of your other podcasts and um, a couple of the people i've had on the summer school actually have appeared um bridget whelan and john o'donoghue in fact bridget was one of my former students and went on to become a very successful writer and teacher and John I've known for years because I go back to Green Ink days with John Um, in fact I interviewed John for a college project about Green Ink back in god I don't know about 1990 or something um, when he was involved in that Um, fascinating guy you know full of ideas loads of energy I mean it's a lot of hats that you wear there isn't it it is actually, I don't know how that happened. It's like I uh, fell into a cloakroom and came out with about 10 hats on my head. Um, uh, they just sort of accumulated a bit. But <clears throat> I suppose um, it might be something to do with always trying to kind of keep a balancing act. And maybe that comes from being second generation. You know, you're always trying to, <clears throat> you know, keep uh, different things in balance. And I've never... Um, Never been one for kind of walking away from something completely. Always like to keep an iron in the fire here and there. So, um, because I wasn't uh, by any means uh, a kind of academic. Uh, I wasn't a brain box at all. Uh, if anything, my brother was the brain box in the family. Uh, I was the one that didn't go to university when I left school. I, I became a technician and uh, I spent a few years doing that. And um, in fact, I, I didn't like school. And uh, believe it or not, I actually really hated reading. I hated books. Um, so quite how I ended up doing the job I'm doing. Um, I, um, I think I was more into music when I was a teenager than literature. Um, but I, I, I maybe, I think what it was, was I, I kind of developed, a, as, as, as I really got into the music and I read The Enemy, you know, in the 70s and all of that, I um, I acquired something of a critical take on things, and I, I when I reflect on it, I think maybe what happened was that that faculty, um, that that sort of critical faculty, developed um, with the music, and then it just transferred over to the literature later in my career, because after doing an Irish studies degree and an MA, I ended up uh, specialising in the literature of Irish migration, and particularly sort of the Irish in London. Um, so I, I guess I brought those, um, uh, how would you call it, th- 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 those kinds of um, interests and takes on, on music to, to literature. What kind so, of music do, did you listen to? Oh, God. Uh, I was sort of on the cusp, really, between um because i was i was born in 56 so uh when i was really getting seriously into music it was just prior to the punk era i was you know i, I really used to like Led zeppelin um i wouldn't call yeah you know, i wouldn't say i like them so much these days but certainly at that time and that whole kind of um you know sort of blues rock I wouldn't say I ever got into the progressive rock so much, but I got into blues rock and that, and and then I went back to listen to, you know, the old blues guys as well later. Um, But I was also into, I think, a bit of the folk music stuff that was happening in the mid seventies, particularly with those new, those Irish bands that came along like Planksty and the Bothy band, who I found really exciting because they were doing something new. 
Um, but then punk came along and that <laughs> exploded everything. And I, I, I was kind of caught on a cusp there. I, I, there were certain things about punk I actually thought were amazing, you know, like the, the, the just that pure sense of creativity and energy. Um, and it's still there if you listen to, you know, the Sex Pistols' first album. It's, it's, it's frightening. As soon as you put it on, it's just incredible. But um, I think um, there are other aspects to it which I didn't identify with quite so much. So um, I was sort of had mixed feelings. Um, but it was a really productive and interesting time. I think that the, the energy that came out of that period and, and the ability for young you know guys and gals to get up and just do it you know um just get up on a stage and start playing you know maybe only new three chords as they say but you know it was, it, it was a it was permission in a way to be creative in a way which maybe uh has got lost a little bit since and it certainly wasn't there beforehand with the big rock bands you know that was much harder to sort of get into music in those days, I think. There's that kind of do-it-yourself element that I think punk brought in. Exactly, yeah, you put it in. Yeah, exactly, that's what it was. The do-yourself ethic, really, wasn't there? And uh, um, I think that was that was very positive. Um, I mean, you know, sometimes it worked, sometimes it didn't, but it didn't matter. You know, there were so many bands at that time, I remember... You know, <laughs> very privileged living in London and growing up in London and just being able to go out. Well, actually, some nights it was a case of, well, who am I going to go to? You know, you've got the Boontown Ranch, you've got XTC, you've got, you know, the Stranglers. or <laughs> They're all playing on the same night. You could go to any of them, just pick which one. You know, it was, it was an amazing um, embarrassment of riches just for a few years there. Um, your parents are both from Ireland. That's right, yeah. Um, my dad was from Mayo, uh, my mum from Donegal, so both from the rural farming backgrounds. Um, and they came over here in the late 40s and uh, met in London, in, uh, actually met in Holloway, um, which is where I've lived and worked most of my life, funny enough, um, after a few digressions elsewhere abroad. But... Um, yeah, they, they met there and um, like a lot of Irish couples, you know, they they fell in love and married, had a family and we all grew up in Holloway. And my dad was initially a labourer and then he, he got a job at the post office, which was a really good job um, in the 60s and 70s. And my mum was, um, she was better educated than my dad in many ways. And she had quite good secretarial qualifications by the end of it. Um, having grown up in Donegal, um, she she wasn't able to find work. You know, there was still quite a strong sectarian divide at that time. Coming from a Catholic background, she didn't get the opportunities that she might have. So she ended up coming to London and she um, became a nurse. So she ended up working in psychiatric nursing. Um, and um, we kind of, you know, myself, my brother and my two sisters, we all grew up in a very typical London Irish background, I guess. You know, um, Irish in the sense of the church we went to, the school, the schools we went to, um, you know, the classic holidays in Ireland every summer. Um, but uh, at the same time, it was, it was London and it was a very different background to growing up in Ireland um, so I think once I got to adolescence I realized you know there was some real conflicts to sort out in terms of who I was I mean everyone does that don't they in adolescence everything's questioned everything gets thrown out <laughs> of the of the cot whatever you know it's all up for grabs and um, I guess so Irishness was part of that you know um, um, but, um, you know, eventually, I think, as I said, once I, once I got to the mid-80s, I, I started to realise that I needed to just explore my Irish background a bit more. I needed to understand where I came from and my history. Um, 
you know, I couldn't just assume things I felt because I kept meeting people from other, so like myself, second generation, but they had very different kind of backgrounds in terms of their parents and what their parents did. Um, so that was, that was interesting. You know, I had to come to terms with the fact that, well, you know, my sense of Irishness, which was very rooted in, you know, a particular part of Ireland, the west of Ireland, Mayo, where we used to go as kids every year, where I loved and I've got fantastic childhood memories. That was just my personal sense, you know, kind of Irishness. There was loads of other um, forms of Irishness, which, um, which I um, started to read about and think about and then ultimately kind of write about. Um, so I spent my life, <laughs> you know, playing around with these ideas of identity because I, I find them endlessly fascinating. They never stay still. They're always changing. Um, was that an exploration that was shared by your brother and your sisters? That's a very good question, Doug. And I think um, my brother, perhaps not so much. I think for him, um, he wasn't as navel-gazing as me. You know, he just got on with it. He, he got a good job and he... Um, I think he he certainly wouldn't disown his Irishness, that's for sure. And, um, he's very proud of that. But he wouldn't, um, you know, he, it wouldn't be such a big deal in terms of his identity, let's say. Um, and my sisters uh, do a little bit more like me. But in their cases, they're quite interesting because they went back to live in Ireland about 15 years ago. Because my I didn't say my parents moved back in the early nineties uh, to live in Ireland in, in retirement, um, and then my two sisters followed. So, in a strange sort of way, <laughs> I was the one who was left behind in London um, because my brother lived in Brussels, and um, I, um, you know, uh, it was a weird, it was it was a very interesting turning point. Um, I realised in some ways that maybe through the studies and the research I was doing that Ireland was coming to me in London rather than me going to Ireland, if you know what I mean. So it was some compensation for that. Uh, but then later I realised actually, no, that's, that's quite a strong position to be in because um, it is about both. It's not just about being Irish, it's also about being a Londoner. Um, and these days you can always go back well not right now but yeah generally you can go backwards and forwards to Ireland drop of a hat so I kind of get the best of both worlds in a way. I'd like to talk about London Irishness in a moment but I just want to catch on to something that you've mentioned there which is that your parents went back to Ireland in the early 90s you say yes and from their perspective, was it a very different country from the one that they left? What was the reception that they got having come back? Because having talked to Neve Lear last week, um, not that weeks mean anything when it comes to podcasts, um, it, there's, a, there's a sense that there's a, a, or there's a resentment sometimes of those that come back because, after all, they didn't stick it out. Absolutely. Uh, that's quite a common experience. Um, I know that. Um, my parents are very lucky. Uh, just a lot, I think. They they went back to Donegal, which is where my mum is from, and I think there was a bit more support there in terms of her sister and my cousins. Uh, there was a network, if you like, a family support network. Um, but it wasn't easy. Um, I think, um, oddly enough, I think my dad found it easier. Although he was a Mayo man, he was kind of... Uh, in Donegal, he was the... Um, the sort of uh, slightly unusual because there were very few Mayo people around there. Yeah, he he played that up. He's kind of a gregarious character, and uh, he was also an Arsenal fan amongst a load of Man U fans. So that was another. You know, he enjoyed all of that. Um, of course, as a man, he had the opportunity to just go down the pub and sort of have a drink. Whereas for my mum, oddly enough, I think it's much more difficult because. In the, even in the early 90s, it was much more difficult for a woman, certainly of her mum's age, to go just out socially in that way. Um, and it took time for her to reintegrate. Having not, you know, having been away for 42 years, going back, she left at age 17. Going back, everybody knew her, 
but she didn't necessarily know who they were. She had to sort of put the jigsaw puzzle back together again very slowly. Um, and gradually she sort of, you know, found herself and relaxed again. What I noticed about my mum was, well, you know, initially when they went back, she was still very kind of like, um, I don't know, she had that uptightness about living in London. She was always sort of on the go. She was doing this, that and the other. And very, um, whereas, you know, three years later, she'd slowed down into the Donegal pace. She'd relaxed a bit, let go. And that was really nice to see. Um, so I think for them, yeah, they were very lucky. They they had a good sort of 15 years of pretty idyllic retirement, I have to say, although, you know, when they died, it wasn't all great. But yeah, they, they had a had a great time. Really. And what is it your sisters did? Your, your, your brother moved across to Brussels, so I'm presuming it's something to do with Europe. Yeah. Um, yeah, he worked... Um, he worked for a kind of consultancy firm in Brussels with the EU. And then my sister, um, one of them lives down in Galway. She's um, she's a painter, actually. Um, and she also teaches fine art, as many painters do. Um, and uh, the other sister works in Donegal as a debt counsellor. And she's uh, brought her family up there. So my nieces, her daughters, Although they were born in London, they uh, they're effectively brought up in Donegal, so they have Donegal accents and they're kind of very Irish in that sense. It's another dimension. It's uh, but when I talk to them, they say, "Well, no, actually, you know, the real Donegal, their their peers, if you like, the ones they went to school with, uh, find them quite odd because they grew up in London." So they had that you know, kind of crisis of identity as well. So it's just passed on to another generation in a funny way. You're listening to The Plastic Podcast's Tales of the Irish Diaspora. Like many of my guests, Tony Murray likes to describe himself as part of the London Irish. Before looking at what that means, I ask him to describe growing up in London. Grew up in, uh, well, Hilltop Crescent. Uh, Tufnell Park, kind of Axis, Holloway, Camden, Tufnell Park. Um, and oddly enough, I, I moved back to this area. So I've now lived sort of between Gospel Oak and Tufnell Park. Um, moved back here a few years ago. Give us a description of what, um, what, what Tufnell Park, Camden area was like at the time. Very different to the way it is now. I mean, now it's classic sort of North London bourgeois kind of you know um not so much holloway i think holloway hasn't changed so much but tufnell park um you know a lot of um single occupier big houses um middle class uh families people who've done very well a lot of media people uh, a lot of people politicians uh, labor party politicians it's it's very much of that ilk, I suppose. Um, whereas when I was growing up, um, those houses were much more run down. They now look immaculate, beautiful Victorian and Georgian houses. But at that time in the 60s, uh, they were all let out. You know, there was like maybe six or seven flats in some of those houses. Um, we grew up in a basement flat in one of them. Um, and um, yeah, uh, it wasn't that long after the war, you know, I mean, it was still only sort of 15, 20 years after the war. And um, I suppose the legacy of that was still in the air. Um, um, i tell you something, uh, which is very interesting with lockdown. Um, I noticed just wandering around the streets where I live now, I, 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 I felt like in a way I was almost going back to those days. I was almost going back in time because... There were no cars on the streets. Everything was much quieter. Um, and uh, kids were playing in the streets like we used to do, you know. Um, uh, that's been unheard of, you know, for like decades. But in this last few months, certainly in April, May time, and, you know, the lockdown was at its height, um, I noticed that. And that was quite a nice aspect to 
to the, the lockdown experience for me. It kind of brought me back and made me think about what my childhood was like on those streets growing up in the 60s. I felt a real sense of connection again. Um, yeah, and so, and so, so when you were, uh, to, to, to carry on with this thread, which is that when you were sort of then reconsidering what your childhood was like as you looked around uh, London in lockdown, what were, what were your thoughts? Um, I don't know if I thought about it in any um, kind of deliberately conscious way or even, you know, uh, theoretical way. You know, I didn't think about it in terms of the way I would my work and my research. It was much more of an emotional um, experience. And I, I found uh, just this sense of connection, which I hadn't anticipated. Uh, I wasn't, I was surprised how strong it was. Um, uh, right down to just the minutiae of <laughs> uh, literally the physicality of certain streets, uh, walking down streets I hadn't walked down for years because that's what we were doing in lockdown. We were trying to find places to go for a bit of exercise when actually Hampstead Heath was mobbed, you know, with joggers and cyclists. We couldn't go there. So we were out in the um, back streets walking around and um, I, I kind of rediscovered old streets that I'd sort of forgotten about. Uh, from childhood and, and and discovered ones which I didn't even know existed, you know. So it's very it's very interesting time. Um, it is it is it is curious. I mean, so it's one of the things that we often talk about on this, which is that lockdown kind of reworked your relationship with the idea of home. Very much, yeah. And um, I think this summer for me has been a, a massive kind of reconsideration of home because I've actually spent half the summer in Ireland because my partner's mother died and we were over for a long time. Came back, went back again, deal with family matters. And I've, then I went to see my family um, as well, my sisters. And um, yeah, uh, I've sort of um, had a deep immersion in both, uh, you know, my, my London existence through the, through the lockdown, the early lockdown period, and then in the more recent um, couple of months, I've spent more time in Ireland than I spent since I was a kid going over on holidays, those long holidays, you know. Uh, so I was seeing, an, a, I suppose, a, a side to Ireland which I may not have seen before. It's almost like, felt like at times, almost living there, you know, temporarily. Uh, unlike just being over for a visit or on holiday. So that was an insight as well. Um, I think on balance, I felt um, relieved to get back. <laughs> um, right. It wasn't the happiest time to be in Ireland, I have to say, because there were, you know, because of the family circumstances. So that's not fair. But, and I saw some, you know, we did a little bit of driving around and, um, you know, Ireland is what it is you know particularly the west it's just gobsmacking and you keep coming across such wonderful you know places and people um that never changes uh, even with all the celtic tiger stuff ireland is a very different sensibility to here people like to chat people like to tell stories you know and uh i always feel more at ease talking to irish people than english people you know um I don't know that just that's just me and um, despite having grown up here in London all my life and lived most of my life in London that's still the case um, I just slip into it with Irish people in a way I can't with English people so easily I mean there's a there's, there's there's a lot here that's kind of about change and also on the other hand it's about uh, stasis I suppose for want of a better term um in as much as you you've you you've spent your a lot of your life in the same kind of area in London, or you come back to it, I, yeah, I, I I always come back to it. I lived in Manchester for for three years. Um, oh, whereabouts? I, I was in uh, South Manchester. I was a student there for a year. Then I was unemployed for two years, which left a real mark. <laughs> um, that was an experience. I, you know, was it. Um, a very shaping experience let's say um yeah that was in 
79 to 82. So it was in the depths of that Thatcher recession. It was not the place to be living, Manchester <laughs> at that time. They took it really hard, you know. Um, all the, the, you know, the, the shutdown of manufacturing and industry up north. But um, yeah, when I what I discovered up there was my Londoners came. My my sense of London identity was much more apparent to me because Mancunian saw me as a posh southerner, you know, <laughs> which I, you know, because it's that north-south thing. Um, oh, you come from London, yeah. You, you, oh, you, you must think we all live in Mordops up here, do you? You know, um, there was a real sense of, I don't know. Um, I mean, I love Mancunians as well, and I, I got, you know, still have friends up there, but I, uh, um, I found that, difficult I, I just felt like they saw me as something which I wasn't and I didn't see myself as you know posh in any way but because I came from London that's how they saw it um, uh, so that was interesting in terms of identity because you don't always deter I realized then that you cannot always determine your own identity it's not entirely within your own hands you'll always be defined by other people in a particular way and you then have to deal with that um i think that goes for all sorts of identities um but then i lived in spain for a while as well so i uh that was another kind of experience around identity uh, i love spain you know i've always gone backwards and forwards to spain um and what i discovered when i lived there was that one of the positive things was that uh, weirdly enough i could uh, as a second generation Irish person, I could just say I was Irish uh, if I wanted to. And just, yeah, because I didn't have a, they couldn't determine I was a London, Londoner or, you know, British as opposed to Irish. So most Spanish people just accepted it straight off. There were no questions. I didn't have to go through the whole rigmarole of, <laughs> you know, as I might to an English person, uh, explaining, you know, my background um why was i calling myself irish well you know it's because of family history blah 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 um, i didn't have to do that that was a kind of um relief in a way and i could just sort of express my my sense of if i wished you know um my sense of inheritance in, in spain in a way which i couldn't do in england <laughs> You're listening to the Placid Podcasts, Tales of the Irish Diaspora, We All Come From Somewhere Else. We'll be returning to Tony Murray in a moment, but now it's time for the plastic pedestal, and raising up her personal icon of the diaspora, here's Neve Lear. I really thought about this for a long time, you know, um, and I found it really difficult because there's so many people um, who are part of the Irish diaspora. Like, it's, it's, it's huge. There's so many people who've done such, like, amazing things. Um, but the person I thought of, uh, I don't know if you've heard of her, she's called Samantha Barry. Um, and she's currently the editor-in-chief of Gamma magazine. Uh, she worked for CNN. Um, she did, she worked for the BBC, she worked for CNN, she's done political journalism. And she's now, as I say, editor-in-chief for the Glamour magazine in New York. And she's just such a wonderful, intelligent, eloquent, sassy sort of woman. And um, as an Irish person and as a, a, a female um, in our society today, I just think she's incredible and I love the way she goes into stuff and I love the way she pre presents herself and I love the way she honours her, her, she is an, an Irish immigrant herself, she's not a second generation, but I love the way she um, embraces her Irishness um, and rightly so and, and just goes into things with such pizzazz you know like um such a strong sassy woman which i i appreciate i endeavor to be a strong sassy woman neve lear there talking about samantha barry currently editor-in-chief of glamour magazine now back to tony murray now tony's life seems to have taken a number of different routes and i wonder if he believes in the idea of turning points i think i do we don't always recognize them at the time but certainly in retrospect you do um, I do, and I think 
that um, we can control a certain amount of what we do um, when we can maybe, you know, sketch out a career for ourselves. And some people are able to do that, perhaps. But I think for the vast majority of us, uh, there are these turning points and they're just, they come out of the blue and you're given an opportunity, you either go with it or you don't. And um, they, uh, they can change your life. So there's a real randomness and luck factor to it all. I, I do believe that. Um, so I suppose I'm a bit of a fatalist in that way. Uh, I don't think you can determine everything. I think certainly the older I get, the more I realise that, you know, um, you just have to accept that things are continually going to change and that you continually have to be ready to adapt and, you know, look what we've just gone through with COVID, you know, that's the biggest one out the lot. Um, what we found with, with, uh, with our other interviewees is that the, attitude towards the diaspora and Irishness and the diaspora's own attitude towards itself has changed over the course of the last 40 to 50 years. Massively. Yeah. And how do you, how do you think that, that, that's, that, that's changed? More importantly, do you think there was a turning point? Um, I think there probably was a turning point, but I don't think it happened at any particular moment. If it was a much more gradual change. And I think that took place, probably in the early 90s, mid 90s in Ireland. Um, I think attitudes changed to the diaspora in the sense that they no longer took the diaspora for granted um, or um, simply forgot about the migrants who left. I think by the mid 90s, um, an awful lot well, there was, a, there was a phase of return of which my parents were a part, actually. A lot of people came back to live in Ireland. Um, people who had, some had come straight after the war, like my parents, but others from the 1980s, actually, the 80s migrant generation, who went back to live in Ireland in the 90s. And I think their understanding of what it meant to be Irish in Britain and the conflicts and ambivalences of that experience were brought back to Ireland and informed, you know, the general cultural debate about Irishness. So I think that that was a positive thing. Um, and, and I think as a consequence, government policy started to adapt and reflect that. So the immigrant support programme became a major plank of, you know, the Irish abroad policy. Uh, there was a sense that, you know, the, the government had to, couldn't just forget about the Irish abroad, they had to do something to support, particularly in Britain. I mean, America's always been a different story. Uh, the Irish had tended to do much, you know, done well over there, much easier than they have here. Yes, well, you have Irish Americans, but you don't have Irish Britons, do you? No, you don't. And there's all those political kind of historical complications around the term Irish Britain or Irish-British. Um, um, I think that's where the London-Irish term probably comes from. It's a way of circumnavigating that to some extent, certainly in my case. Um, but yeah, I think uh, diaspora as a word is interesting. It's interesting that the Irish adopted it uh, because prior to the 80s um, and 90s, it wasn't a word you would have heard any Irish person using, you know. Um, it, was a Jew it was associated much more with the Jewish diaspora. But I think that that, um, if academia makes any kind of contribution, I wonder whether it does often, you know, and I will make any claims. But in terms of the ge more general kind of cultural milieu, if you like, of what's happened in Ireland over this last few decades, I think that diaspora, which is effectively a kind of theoretical idea, you know, it's a term, I think it has helped to um, broaden people's awareness of uh, what Irishness means and how complex it is. Um, I think that's been a really positive thing and people like Mary Robinson who got up and used the term formally for the first time in 1990 I think it was and that was an absolute turning point. Um, 
again, we talked we talked about Mary Robinson and turning points and her famous candle and all that sort of thing. John John O'Donoghue in our first interview, he talked about how the the uh, the, the diaspora in Britain had a tendency to wind their necks in his his term there. Uh, to to not really talk about their own Irishness, and now we have a situation where I'm talking to you, and you're a, you're a, you're a doctor who who who's, who's had a, did a six year degree in Irish studies and so forth, something that wouldn't have been 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 been, been conceivable 40, 50 years ago, which is which is which was a click of the fingers in in in, in historical terms, um, and 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 so how is it that the the, the diaspora's approach to itself in this country has changed rather than in Ireland? Do you think? If you mean the diaspora, if you mean, do you mean the Irish community here? Second, third generation, yeah, Second, all that. Third, yeah. It's a very good question. Um, I think um, it's generally been a positive one. Um, I think that uh, there's been massive challenges for the Irish here, you know, coming through the troubles and the peace process. And but I think, uh, how do we feel about ourselves? Um, I don't know. I I um, I feel in some ways the fact that maybe in my experience, people perhaps don't talk about it as much as they used to. I found that maybe 10, 20 years ago, people were much more embroiled in those conflicts of identity, perhaps because the troubles were still going and we were all talking about identity. Whereas now, maybe it's a good thing that we don't have to anymore. We're kind of We've accepted ourselves as, you know, these curious hybrid or hyphenated individuals, you know, and we all kind of just get on with that. We, we, we don't have to necessarily feel we should choose one way or the other about our identities in the same way anymore. You know, um, maybe that's a, that's a good thing um, because... And yet uh, there's Brexit. And yet there's um, a rush for Irish passports, and yet yeah. there's and that has brought it, it's resurrected a lot of that old stuff, hasn't it, around the colonial relationship and um, and uh, some of the you know more extreme right wing views you encounter um, in regards to you know immigrants generally some of that is start start to rub off of attitudes to the Irish in places there's no question um, you know um, so it's a nasty kind of echo really of a time which uh, was not very comfortable to live through and that certainly made me feel less than well disposed to living in this country You're listening to the Plastic Podcasts, Tales of the Irish Diaspora. We all come from somewhere else. Find and subscribe to us at www.plasticpodcasts.com. In the last part of my interview with Tony Murray, we talk about being London Irish and what that means. Uh, I suppose I have the advantage or the privilege of living in London, which feels like a little bit of a cocoon, maybe from Brexit land. You know, I have this sense of uh, London being surrounded on almost under siege now by, uh, you know, um, Brexit land, um, you know, non-metropolitan England. Um, and yet, if you're defined by others, as you say, um, with regards to Irishness or your, your or your identity, so the fact that you are in London is regarded by others as being something of a... Um, well, that that you don't understand how the rest of the country is going. Absolutely, and uh, I think um, you know the the referendum was a wake up call for Londoners, and I think it was a necessary one. Actually, I mean, I don't agree with you know leaving the EU, um, but I do think that we became very myopic, um, and um, I remember going to a wedding in Coventry about six months ago, uh, maybe longer. It was before COVID, but I, um, I remember going to a pub the night before the wedding just for a bite to eat uh, with my partner. And um, three guys sat down just close to this middle-aged guy, same age as me, and 
there's a nice kind of convivial sort of pub, there's a band on, nice atmosphere. And uh, we got into conversation, as you do when you go up north, you know, people talk a bit more than they do in London. That was nice and had a chat. And then um, they heard my accent and that was it. It was like <laughs> one way conversation from then on. It was all about Brexit and how you Londoners haven't got a clue. Um, and they, um, you know, uh, okay, they, they, they probably, you know, picked up a lot of their attitudes from reading the, the Sun or the, you know, whatever uh, online about, uh, you know, migrants and refugees and blah, blah. And, um, but underneath it, I, I had to come away and reassess, you know, what had happened to people in ordinary small towns up and down the country and how they had actually been left behind um, and how I think their sense of identity had been eroded, you know, that their sense of belonging had somehow slipped away um, because they didn't recognise the country they were living in anymore. Um, so I think, um, you know, I can... I wouldn't agree with what's th those views, but I can certainly empathise to some degree with, you know, their sense of conflict over their identity. Because after all, that's where we've come from. We've come from, you know, this <laughs> um, engagement with what it means to be Irish for the last 30 odd years, you know, Irishness um, and Irish identity. Well, now the English are having to do that, you know, and it's a really difficult, process to go through um, because things are changing I mean Scotland Wales Northern Ireland are not for Brexit you know I mean Wales is but you know certainly you know the UK looks like it is starting to break up um, because the English are starting to realize that they want something different um, I think it's a fantasy they're looking back to you know empire the war and all of that which gave them a sense of worth let's face it after like 10 years of austerity you know and having your nose rubbed in the dirt you know by successive governments uh, it's not surprising a lot of people have felt fed up and just decided sod you i'll you know i'll, I'll show you what i think and vote <laughs> when i've got the one chance to do it i'll I'll say two fingers, and um, that's partly what re the referendum is about, I think. Um, Speaking of identity, um, you describe yourself on a number of occasions as being London Irish. And um, is there something that's very, very specific to being London Irish, those two things together? I think it's the duality for me, which is important, yeah. Being both things at the same time without necessarily the two kind of diluting. Um, but it's also about London in the sense of London being a place where lots of migrants have come to live, make a living and contribute. Um, and as a son of Irish migrants, I feel part of that massive post-war change in London, along with, you know, the Afro-Caribbean community, Asian community, and now Eastern European community um, I feel that London that's always been partly what London's about it's always been an evolving place and it's been a place where you know largely not all the time but largely there's been a, a tolerance to allow people to live the life they want to live and where you come from you know is um, shouldn't necessarily getting away of that it doesn't always happen of course but yeah is that any different from say liverpool irish or manchester irish or leeds irish or any other you know major city that i care to mention well i think all those cities you mentioned are fairly multicultural in their own rights and i would imagine that that probably applies to them as well whether individuals who call themselves manchester irish or liverpool irish think of it in the same way as i do in terms of that multicultural dimension I wouldn't like to say, um, but, um, you know, I think that that certainly is part of the history of 
certainly somewhere like Liverpool, which was built on, you know, migration really and empire and that whole, you know, colonial dimension. Um, I, um, I think that being able to say Liverpool Irish or Birmingham Irish, as opposed to English Irish, has been a form of liberation for a lot of second generation people because it's enabled us to say two things at the same time. In other words, we're not being defined one way or the other. We um, give equal credence to both sides of our inheritance. I think that that's really important. Um, but ultimately, what I would also say is that labels like that are um, inadequate in terms of really giving really describing the um, complexity of what it means to be second generation Irish or Jewish or Asian. And that's where, for me, the writing and the narratives and the fictions and the autobiographies come in because they enable a story to be told. And I've increasingly come to the conclusion that identity is actually about storytelling process it's about an evolution over time as well as space you know i mean the migrant identity is about space because of migration but it's also about time in terms of you know how uh, an identity doesn't stay static it evolves as we get older um and i think that that's um you know, something which I'm, it's an idea which I'm very keen on and I, I feel maybe still doesn't, I don't hear enough about, you know, that just that, that sense of um, how important people's stories are. I mean, that's partly why I jumped at the chance of doing this with you, Doug, because I thought it was a great idea to do these podcasts, to give people the time you've allowed allowed us all plenty of time to actually just, um, you know, talk at length about these, uh, these complications about being second generation Irish. Um, and often we don't get that chance. We're told to sort of provide a soundbite for a, you know, a newspaper piece or, you know, um, and I don't think that does, that can do justice really. Um, I think we do need that time and space. Bless you. Bless you. Thank you for saying so. Um, we, speaking of time, uh, we don't have much more left, um, as, as, as I know that, um, that, that um, our days get filled. So I'm going to ask a couple of things. First of all, um, I just want to follow up on a thought there, and um, uh, which is how do you feel that your identity or your sense of identity has changed over that time? I think it's changed from, uh, um, I suppose, a static sense of my identity to one that's much more fluid. Um, now that might be seen as, you know, somehow dilution, but it's not actually, it's a strengthening. Uh, because when I was younger, uh, when I'd get into debates about the troubles, I would take a very, very rigid stance. You know, it was an emotional stance. It was where my family came from. And I, um, you know, I would, <clears throat> I would see myself as totally Irish in those situations. It was like, you know, nothing could touch it. Uh, I was the, you know, I was as authentic as any, anyone born in Ireland. Um, um, I still feel that, actually. But um, I've realised as I got older that, you know, my, my childhood and my, my adolescence and growing up here and the work I've done and lived in London most of my life, that that's actually just as important and that has to be referenced as well. It has to be given um, fair, fair due. So I suppose that's where the mixed sense of identity comes from i didn't used to like i didn't used to like uh, adopting that um, sense of ambivalence but now i i feel it's more more strength because the more i speak to people and the more interviews i do like you do with people from second generation backgrounds the more i realize 
that that's full of contradictions. Um, and there's all sorts of um, nuances, facts and fictions getting mixed up, you know, it, but in a wonderful creative way. And it's, uh, I think, um, you know, I think that I would prefer to think of myself as someone who's had a story to tell about the change in my sense of self rather than think that I'd always stuck true to that, you know, original kind of very monolithic sense of Irishness uh, that I might have had when I was in my teens. Tell me about the archive. Oh, it's full of these stories. Uh, we did loads of interviews, um, both from the, in the 1980s, we did a series of interviews with people who came over in the 1930s and 40s, told their stories about being Irish in, in Britain. Some, oh God, some heartrending stories. And also we did some in um, the early part of this century, how would you call that, the first decade, the noughties. We did, um, we did actually some film interviews and um, that was a marvellous experience because originally I just wanted to do audio, but then a producer, I know, a film producer said, why don't you film it? We did the similar kinds of interviews, just asking people about their experience coming over, older people. Um, my parents' generation, um, and um, they really rose to the occasion, and um, they told some magnificent tales, um, and they talked so well. They were just, you know, fascinating to listen to. So um, we put that film up on our archive website. If you go to the archive website, you can see it. It's called "I I Only Came Over for a Couple of Years." Dot dot dot. <laughs> You've been listening to The Plastic Podcasts with me, Doug Devaney, and my guest, Tony Murray. The Plastic Pedestal was provided by Neve Lear. Music by Jack Devaney. You can find us and subscribe to us at www.plasticpodcasts.com or just look for us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. The Plastic Podcasts has been sponsored using public funding by Arts Council England.